This is the Masters of Cinema Cast. My name is Joachim, and today I have with me Scott Knight from Battleship Potential and Criterion Cast. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so before we start talking about Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish, I thought we could talk about you and your background and how you got started into um, writing about film. Yeah, sounds great. Did you have any like uh, academic background, or did you just fall into it? Um, a little bit of both. I went. I did go to school for media studies, but obviously that was spurred on by you know some non-academic interest and in just casually, you know, loving film. And then hmm. once I got out of school, just kind of started writing about it more as a desire to kind of keep that education going. And I've been lucky to catch a few breaks along the way. Nothing too exciting, but uh, writing for Criterion Cast and Battleship Pretension is definitely opened up some great opportunities. Mm. Do you remember, like, what was the thing that kind of brought you onto another level? Because many have their own film blogs, but uh, it's a different thing writing for, like, a a bigger site or a, a syndicate site or something. Yeah, uh, honestly, just moving to Los Angeles, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, went to school in Boston, and then spent a year in Portland figuring out where to go after that, um, mm. and just kind of ended up choosing Los Angeles because it seemed like there were some great opportunities here, and then pretty quickly met Tyler Smith of Battleship Retention, um, mm. who was uh, generous enough to give me a break there at the site, and then I kind of built up press credentials through them, and going to screening, getting DVDs and Blu-rays, and then uh, just Criterion Cast just had an open call at one point, and so I put my name in, they already kind of knew me, so that's worked out pretty well, and I've gotten some stuff published elsewhere at rogerieber.com and uh, IndieWire, just as a result mm-hmm. of building a portfolio and meeting people through Twitter is the biggest thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so just kind of going from there. How do you feel about like uh, how internet podcasting works in compared to like blogging? Um, how do you do? You, do you th- feel that you approach a film differently when you're going to discuss it uh, in a podcast or when you're trying to review it for a site? Uh, I guess slightly, partially because I'm not um, automatically inclined towards uh, speech and podcasting and stuff. I'm, you know, I'm much more suited to sitting down and writing and thinking Mm -hmm. about and rewriting and then uh, (laughs) kind of coming to what I'm eventually going to say after a while. So definitely when I'm preparing to podcast, I tend to think through my talking points a little bit more than when I'm just writing about something where I can think about it basically endlessly unless there's a deadline. Mm. Uh, when you when you watch a film, do you like watch it without thinking about uh, consciously thinking about what it's doing to you? Do you think about it like after the film is done, or do you keep gauging your emotions? I tend to think about it more afterwards. Um, mm. In the moment, if something occurs to me that I definitely want to know, I'll want to make note of in a review or just in conversation. I'll you know kind of mentally flag it, but I don't take notes or anything. And for the most part, yeah, I prefer to let a film sit with me for a while after seeing it to really figure out how I felt about it. Uh, the film we're talking about today actually is definitely a hallmark of that. I wasn't really prepared for what I was going to see right away. And then it was very difficult for me to write that initial review because it's so bowled me <laughs> over. And I'm glad I've had, you know, a year or two to kind of think about it since then before we're talking about it now. What's like the main focus when you watch a film? Is it how it affects you like emotionally or do you feel like you're approaching it more from an intellectual side and uh, thinking about the narrative structure, or is it a combination? Uh, It's definitely a combination. Um, I think more so watching, especially foreign films and stuff, you really get a sense of the merging of kind of the intellectual and the emotional. And Mm -hmm. to me at this point, they're kind of one and the same. If something 
uh, hits me intellectually, it will inevitably move me emotionally and to a certain extent, vice versa. Hmm. The Masters of Cinema, uh, you write uh, for a Criterion cast there for, uh, about their releases. Um, but did you get into Masters of Cinema before that? Or was it something that um, like grew out of Criterion guests? I definitely heard of them and I'd bought a couple of their region-free discs, uh, Sunrise and City Girl. So I was definitely familiar with them before getting the Criterion cast assignment. Um, and then when Ryan offered me that, I instantly bought a region-free player. And ever <laughs> since then, that's kind of exploded in a big way. But yeah, up until that point, I hadn't had a lot of hands-on experience with the product, just kind of gazing at it from afar, wishing I had the technology to uh, <laughs> actually play it in my home. Mm. Um, but yeah, now that I do, it's like, I can't imagine how I lived without it. It's a, an amazing line of films. Yeah. Especially this this last uh, quarter of announcements. There are quite a few overlaps between Criterion Collection and Masters of the Cinema. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like should they is it do you have any problem with that or do you feel like it's um, justified seen as they're covering two different continents yeah essentially i mean i know that's kind of like a big sticking point with a lot of uh fans of both lines and since i do follow both lines inevitably there is some overlap and like with the shibarol films they were at least last year mm -hmm. uh i had already seen them but I, then i had to you know, go back and review them so i guess just I mean, but that's such a small complaint for me to be like, oh, God, I have to write about these great films that I, <laughs> I might have seen more recently than others. Um, but for the most part, it, yeah, it doesn't end up affecting me too much. I was glad, particularly glad they announced uh, Nashville in advance because I was on the right on the edge of buying the Criterion version of that. But now I can hold out oh, for yeah. the Masters of Cinema edition. Um, so for me personally, there, it doesn't end up to be a lot of overlap because I tend to be kind of uh, more picky with my purchases for Criterion stuff because they're so expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so by the time I finally get around to purchasing it, Usually I know if there's going to be a Masters of Cinema edition. And, mm -hmm. you know, when there is some overlap, like I said, it's, uh, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, so uh, Rumblefish is the film we're talking about today. And uh, what's your relationship to Francis Ford Coppola? It's been kind of evolving. I mean, like a lot of people, I checked out the 70s stuff pretty early on to when I was getting into film. I definitely saw those four films um, when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And then... Didn't really, I can't, don't think I saw any of his other films until he released uh, Youth Without Youth in 2007. Mm. And I went to see it because it was his latest France Ford Coppola movie. And, you know, I love the 70s stuff. And it was, it's completely different from, you know, anything, certainly in the 70s and really anything he'd done between those two points. Mm. And I realized that there's just this whole world of this guy that I had no idea about at all. Uh, and then after Tetra, I kind of started to slowly go back and work through the other stuff that I'd missed. And uh, Rumblefish, the Master of Cinema release, coincided with that pretty nicely. Mm -hmm. And that especially was, I mean, I think it's one of his like three best films. Um, it really opened me up to this whole side of him that you see in Tetra to a certain extent with the relationship with the brothers, but is uh, just so vulnerable. And so, I mean, the 70s stuff is just so cagey in some ways. Um mm. It's kind of emotionally distant, I think purposefully, especially with something like Conversation, which is all about a guy trying to repress um, yeah. this horrible thing that happened to him. But when you get into the 80s, he's just wide open and putting all of himself out there. And um, it's very unusual to see a, a director with such a big heart that's so willing to just lay it all on the line and not, uh, especially these days, not be ironically distancing about it, but just being like, this is, this is me, these are my concerns. So I found his films immensely touching, and I, he's one of my favorite directors at this point. 
Mm. Uh, the when Youth Without Youth came out, people talked about like this is a renaissance for Copeland, like he's touching on new ground. But I feel like uh, Rumblefish there's uh, there's many resemblances between what he's doing now with definitely more personal works and what he was doing in the eighties with uh, both Rumblefish and The Outsiders as well. That he's touching more on the these uh, human emotions and the more. Mm, you feel that it's more vulnerable to him as a filmmaker. Yeah, for sure. And even uh, on the intellectual side, I was listening to the commentary yesterday, just reminding myself about the film and kind of his feelings towards it. And he recorded that in 2006, um, or when, or I guess maybe even 2005. He definitely wasn't in the process of making Youth Without Youth, but he remarked that uh, he wanted to make more films about time and about kind of the effect of time on people in Youth Without Youth. You know, that's all over that. And so it is interesting, the comparisons you can catch between those two periods where, I mean, it's like 30 years apart, but 20 years, I guess, but he definitely had those same concerns at the time. Obviously, the 70s, as you talked about, that that's what most people know about uh, Coppola with the Godfather films and Apocalypse Now and The Conversation, which is such a great movie. But I feel he's doing more, especially these, I feel like he's, he's in a mode where uh, with Rumblefish, where he's he he's even more daring in in certain aspects. I feel like he's he's pushing film in a different way than he was doing narratively with uh, the other films. If that feels like he's doing something with the classical genre of films, but um, this is more like experimental films. Yeah, I mean, even The Outsiders kind of has that. Uh, it's more of a hearkening back, I guess, to the '50s stuff of big Hollywood. It's not kind of pushing the new Hollywood agenda as much as kind of going back to the films of like Ely Kazan and kind of those fifties epics, you can see, you know, very sun drenched and kind of, uh, methody acting, you know, kind of pouring your heart out kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, by the time he gets to Rumblefish, it's definitely pushing the envelope in some very weird and distinct and really fascinating ways. Mm. He's, he's someone that refuses to like conform to Hollywood where he's like, stubbornly he's challenging the rules throughout his entire career and with Rumblefish it's it's the black and white photography and the non-narrative approach and I think I read that uh, Robert Evans he was shocked by how much it strayed from Hollywood and he couldn't understand any of it <laughs> <laughs> well Robert Evans uh, I mean I've seen I've actually seen uh, some him uh, in person for some screenings and it seems like some of the time he just like was felt so lucky to stumble onto the films that he produced that really made a mark. Um, hmm. I know he fought with uh, Roman Polanski a lot over Chinatown, and he said that ultimately he didn't understand the movie at all, but saw yeah. the way it affected people, and he was like, okay, good enough. <laughs> what I was struck with when I first watched the film was just the amount of known actors in the film. Uh, in hindsight, it's crazy. With Matt Dillon, Mickey Rourke, Tom Waits, Lawrence Fishburne, Diane Lane... Tom Waits, um, Sophia Coppola, Dennis Hopper, Chris Penn, Nick Cage. I mean, if you could have all those in a film now, it would be uh, that would be a star-studded film. And he manages to get all of these into such a small-budget film. I mean, he discovers the talents in this film. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially I think this was Nick Cage's like first real like featured film role. And now he's like this giant star. I mean, whatever people think about his particular <laughs> acting style, he's definitely a force to be reckoned with. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone really makes incredible mark. And it's so fascinating that 
uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character wasn't even in the script. Coppola just liked him and wanted him in the movie in some capacity, and they kind of created this presence to hang over the movie. Mm. And it's just touches like that that are just born completely from instinct, but bear out so well here uh, that mm. I find completely fascinating. And yeah, I mean, Mickey Rourke is incredible in the movie. It's, I think, one of his best performances. And Matt Dillon, too, I don't think he ever really... I mean, I'm not, I guess I'm not too familiar with the guy's work, but you know, I haven't seen Wild Things, but I doubt he uh, reaches <laughs> the same levels there that he really accomplishes here so early in his career. Mm. I, initially, I thought that he was um, probably the worst of the bunch, but really? the more I thought about it and the more when I was rewatching it, it feels like he's his character, his slow and like slightly drowsy, lazy acting style. It it complements the character and it fits so well. Yeah, it's definitely an unusual choice for protagonist. Uh, mm. I, I think the more you know, there's some more active characters on the periphery. It's certainly Motorcycle Boy, but he almost gains by having that distancing. Uh, yeah, by having him be kind of this worship figure, and I, I think a lot of the film's power comes from uh, Matt Dillon's. You know, very incremental transformation over the course of the film, but you can definitely see a certain kind of coming of age. We talked a little bit about the um, theme of uh, the brother and, if, like, the personal side of the of the film with um, the brother leaving and how it feels like uh, the younger character Metal. It's somehow related to Francis Ford Coppola and how he was related to living in. The shadow of his own brother August, and he's—I think he saw the film as a kind of an purgatory thing, with like purging this uh, relationship out of his mind, or kind of an exorcism of sorts. Yeah, I mean, when you look at like Tetro, it's—I don't think he completely exercised that, but mm. it, I think it's just like one of those things that he just felt very deeply and found a perfect avenue to explore it and adapting S.E. Hinton's novel, which I haven't read, but I imagine concerns at least a similar plot line. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's, I mean, their relationship is really potent. I mean, I guess, especially to me, I have a younger brother who I can definitely relate when motorcycle boy says that, uh, he regrets that he couldn't be the older brother that, uh, uh, that Matt Dillon's character wanted. Uh, mm. and I think that's not an uncommon thing for brothers to feel a very intense connection that they nonetheless can't quite capitalize on and can't quite, connect you know they have such a uh, similar upbringing and have that that will always tie them but at the same time you know even though in this film they're both kind of you know gang types and street types they have very different concerns and you know matt Dillon talks about how uh motorcycle boy and their father kind of share this kind of intellectual bond that he can never quite access and he's kind of more instinctive and emotional uh so even though he wants to be, you know, like Motorcycle Boy in some ways, I, I think in some ways he just can't help but being his own man. And even though he wants that connection, he knows that there's kind of this huge gulf between the two of them. Mm. I feel like, not to get too personal or anything, but uh, I can definitely, I'm, I'm the younger brother. Uh, my brother is like three years older than me, but uh, I can definitely relate to the feeling of there comes a point in your life where you you become like conscious of the fact that you are two very different people and your interests are maybe not as similar uh, just because you're from the same upbringing and from the same family you kind of want different things in life and even though you're searching for that 
cer certain connection you it's not always it's not always possible uh even though you're related there's i can definitely relate to that feeling of you can you can only understand so much of another person and it feels like this film is all about trying to understand motorcycle boy through the main protagonist rusty rusty james um it feels like we're trying to investigate motorcycle boy's psyche and his character uh, and i have the feeling that motorcycle boy he he's like the key to the film he's the most important character in the film not in, not only for rusty james but for us as the audience as well this like mythic character that we really want to understand to try to understand the entire movie yeah i mean you can't help it i mean he's just such a compelling figure and you know i mean once he feels a part of the world and yet stands a part of it i think they accomplished that, some of that just through the costuming but also just i uh i can't remember the character's name but the kind of the nerdy friend who hangs out with the motorcycle gang he talks about mm -hmm. how motorcycle boy you know looks older and uh even though i mean the difference he uh estimates is so minute i mean it's like the difference between like 22 and 25 but still like to him it's <laughs> this entire gulf and you can and Coppola wisely keeps the camera on Motorcycle Boy's face so we too can kind of investigate, you know, what might have happened to him when he was away or uh, what might have changed him. And maybe he was more kind of a punk, more like Rusty James when he lived uh, in Tulsa, but now he's gone off to California and there's something exotic about him and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And we'll never quite know what happened to him along the way and why he came back, but we can't help but want to know. Hmm. Um, the, the theme of like misspent youth in, and that no one seems to think that they can escape their own fate. And it, it's like this hopeless existence in this small town. And there's no sense of like looking at the bigger picture and seeking outside of the town. It's all about how life inside the town is going to evolve. And it feels like an encapsulated world. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Coppola talks about on the commentary inviting Chris Marker to shoot the second unit photography and Marker just wandering around the town and just not getting <laughs> anything that could possibly appeal to an audience or to him or to anybody. <laughs> um, and, but Coppola really, I mean, transforms into this very, I mean, I've never been to Tulsa, but uh, you can kind of get the sense that it's a very dull town, but at the same time he does transform into this exotic place that could kind of captivate somebody. Mm. And, yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. The photographer of the film, uh, Stephen Burham, he uh, the use of like black and white in this film is it, it's quite extraordinary. I think Coppola. I think I read that he mentioned in an interview uh, in the Guardian. I think that he he wanted to make an art film for young people. That's why he made it in black and white. But black and white is so integral to the film. It's like it's more than just an aesthetic choice of making an art film. It's I feel like it's an important aspect of the story and how we can relate to Mickey Rourke's character and how, and how he's colorblind. Yeah, I almost feel like some of those justifications and then putting the rumble fish, the fish themselves in color, um, mm. are almost Coppola, you know, trying to find a way to justify shooting in black and white. But I just think, I mean, I love black and white films. So <laughs> anytime, mm. especially a modern director, feels the need to take it on, uh, I, I just think it i mean and yeah it's just a beautiful film and the way then kind of the violence gets muted in some capacity because you know i mean rusty james gets pretty horribly cut in, very early in the film mm -hmm. and there's a gruesomeness that i think uh color would add that i think would somehow detract from 
the experience of watching it, it'd almost be like too immediate. And in some capacity, we can sort of intellectualize uh, the violence at hand without, you know, being forced to confront the horror of, you know, the redness of the blood. It, it can kind of be gruesome, but not overpowering, I guess. Yeah, because the film opens with this great uh, fight scene. It's like a ballet sequence. And I wasn't uh, surprised when I found out that it was actually choreographed by a ballet choreographer. Uh, choreographer, And uh, he also co-directed the scene, if not the entire movie. I can't remember. You can definitely sense like the, the West Side Story and the Grease and the Rebel Without a Cause stamps all over this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's almost a dance film in some ways. Just the I mean, even before they start in the fight, there's that gorgeous camp shot where the rival gang is kind of marching through. And then uh, mm. Biff, the guy eventually fights, just kind of pops right in front of the camera. And it's a very jarring setup. But yeah, that whole sequence is just stunning. And there's so many shots that like it looks like those actors are really getting hurt, even though it's so carefully choreographed. There's the part where Matt Dillon's just beating the guy with this wood, the piece of wood that's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it feels impactful, but at the same time, is very uh, gorgeous. It's mm. a very unusual thing that not enough directors try to merge the beauty of dance with. Uh, I mean, I know the dance and musicals are kind of out of fashion now, but I, there are so many ways that you can include the effect of dance in into film. And I'm glad that Coppola capitalized on it. Mm. It's it's a very very uh, visual film, as well as you can. I was thinking about the um, the use of sound as well. How it it has this like dreamy atmospheric fluid soundtrack as well as the uh, dreamy uh, visuals. Coppola talked about wanting to score the film himself with uh, one of his sons, I think Roman, um, but ended yeah. up handing it off to Stuart Copeland. Uh, I think that's his name. Um, who apparently just tuned into exactly what Coppola wanted, and yeah, the score is really. I mean, it's almost like. There's parts where it's almost like a marching score, mm. but at the same time, it it somehow taps into that kind of dreamlike quality of the movie without, you know, terribly indulging. It'd be very easy to just kind of do this like wandering score. It's just like very ethereal, but it keeps it on pace without uh, without abandoning that dreamlike quality. Mm. It gives it, it gives it that um, that uh, rhythmic quality of like time and uh, like time sticking away. Yeah, it, exactly. It has that. Yeah, it has that tick, 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 always going in almost all of the, uh, almost all of the uh, the songs in the film. But you can also see uh, the visual template from the film. Uh, we were talking about uh, the uh, ballet sequence almost, and how it's an extensive use of like shadows, and there's almost I think there's some painted shadows on the wall for like an ominous effect, and you have these exaggerated images and compositions you have smoke and fog constantly in this film you can like see the um german expressionism films and yeah, how that sure. is definitely influence uh influences from Bovish. yeah it's he makes moves here that i really haven't seen anywhere else you get like the shot of him standing in front of the diner and the clouds zooming by and the reflection of the window and it He's he's definitely influenced by those kind of expressions of films, but it's not pure homage. You know, he's not just borrowing their tactics. He's kind of building on it in uh, a way that feels very, very much in tune with that kind of mindset, but also uh, like American in its own way. It's not uh, it's not like Tim Burton or something where it's just borrowing another person's art. Um, 
he's influenced, but he's not uh, beholden. You can also see uh, footprints of uh, Orson Welles as well in the film. Uh, that's probably because Orson Welles used a lot of German expressionism, but how Orson Welles definitely brought defocused shots into Hollywood. It's kind of inevitable that uh, another great director would be influenced by Orson Welles. I feel like mm. almost every especially American director has been influenced in some way by Orson Welles since Orson Welles. Mm. Uh, there's a, there's a rigor for sure. And yeah, the deep focus and the long shadow, I mean, especially in something like touch of evil, which is also in master cinema collection, of yeah. course. Uh, and also just kind of the grittiness of Wells's depiction of uh, the border in touch of evil. I think, I mean, there's a lot of grittiness in fifties American films, but it's almost uncommonly uh bleak in some ways and i think coppola taps into that while at the same time like i said earlier not like making a show of the grittiness you know there's not there's no real handheld camera movement to great mm. capacity or like yeah i mean a lot i think a lot of american directors now would kind of like make a point of the grittiness and be like look at how intense this is you guys but he just lets <laughs> it exist in mm. a way that keeps it beautiful but keeps it authentic we were talking about the uh, how the music resembles like time and keeping time, and that's something that uh, it's the theme of the film with time running away from us and time counting down and the unreliability of time, and it's something that plays into the very first scenes when Lawrence Fishburne's character he tells Dylan that a rival gang has put a threat on his life and like time is running out for this character, and people are always studying clocks and looking at watches and. There are. Uh, there's a scene where um, Matt Dillon and Mickey Rourke they're stand, standing in front of a clock and talking to this police officer that is uh, constantly dogging them. And there's also a lot of use of time lapse photography in the film. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that shot you mentioned where they're standing in front of that huge clock was one of those moments that, like, I, I mean, I just can't even imagine how he <laughs> concocted it. And that police officer is really great. He's like this archetypal figure that almost seems like. You know, the I mean, he's the only cop we ever see, so he seems like the only cop the town would need. He'll just like appear <laughs> wherever the crime is vaguely happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, the role of time is, I mean, especially once you get to the end, you realize, you know, how short th their time together really was. And mm. in some ways, uh, I think Rusty James kind of realizes that and really tries to capitalize on the time he has with his brother. But at the same time, they spend so much of their time just kind of wandering around, you know, picking up girls or, uh, you know, riding motorcycles and in some ways frittering it away. And yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the inevitable experience of youth is not realizing that it's not going to last. <laughs> um, when do you think the film is set? Because initially I thought that this was in the 80s, but there's kind of the love for Americana of the 50s as well. And it, it kind of makes it timeless and it gives it this fantastical feeling. Yeah, I I assumed actually straight away that it was the 50s because I think that's when the novel set and I think that's when The Outsiders was set. Okay. Um, but, you know, the more you watch it, the less that kind of holds up. I mean, like, there's a scene where uh, Diane Lane comes out of her house wearing, like, tight jeans and a tank top, and that's that doesn't seem like a very 50s uh, ensemble to me. So there's a way <laughs> in which, you know, it is kind of timeless and he resists any specific allusions to when it could take place, which I think is a very strong, a very bold choice. Mm. Can you see, uh, like, uh, this was made in the 80s. Do, do you see any filmmaker nowadays that kind of 
owes allegiance to this film, like that owes a lot to Coppola and this type of cinema. My initial thought was something, someone like Nicholas Windig Refn and Only God Forgives. It owes a lot to this kind of uh, film where it, it takes its time. It's kind of ethereal and it doesn't jump, uh, jump over hoops to try to make its point. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm not the biggest <laughs> Nicholas Wondering Refn fan, um, though I appreciate people like you who can really find a lot in his films that I just, I, I'm trying, but I can't, I can't <laughs> see it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there are a lot of guys like Coppola. Like I said, I think that people tend to be kind of cagey with their emotions now. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson is really flowering into a more vulnerable and interesting director, mm. especially with a master in willing to let a lot of sadness into his films um, while still, I mean, not being like terribly beholden to that sadness, just like recognizing the impermanence of things and the mournfulness of the fact of the passing of time. Um, But I mean, I think the only guy like Coppola really now is still Coppola and luckily we still have him. Mm. You've become quite familiar with his filmography. Do you feel like this is his bravest film in some way? That's a good question, actually. I, I guess in, I guess I'd still say Youth Without Youth is because he went ten years without making a film and came back with something that's so strange and self-distributed it and really made it completely on his own terms. Um, hmm. But for the time in which it came out, I mean, I guess well, I, I mean, Coppola is so fascinating because he, you know, had such a success with Apocalypse Now, even though he laid everything on the line and then repeated the same process with One from the Heart and lost completely everything he had. Hmm. And in some ways, even though he talks about the 80s and 90s as this period in which he only made commercial films that he had some vague interest in, you see time and time again him just putting everything on the line and really doing some insanely adventurous stuff that no other director, no certainly no director who's just trying to make a buck and just trying to get by would do. I mean, the fact that he made Dracula the way he did, hmm. uh, the fact that he did some things with The Godfather Part Three that are still very controversial, um, Tucker, A Man in His Dream is a very unusual 80s biopic. Um, it fits in some ways with kind of the 80s fashion of looking back on 40s and 50s Americana as like the most glorious of times. But it's also, I mean, it, he wanted to make it as a musical and it is somewhat musical in its execution and its artificiality. Uh, and then when you get into stuff like, you know, The Rainmaker and Jack, you know, it's a little bit more normative. But <laughs> yeah, I think especially in the eighties, he was still willing to take some chances and still had that young man's impulse to lose everything with every film. Mm. Uh, he talks about on the commentary that people should only make, you know, the films that they can't help but making, uh, in that capacity, I think Rumblefish is the only one that really holds up in that way. I think the others, he was trying to imbue with something of his own, uh, own artistic license and impulses. But yeah, Rumblefish is definitely, like I said, I mean, it's in his top three for me, and I, it's definitely the best of his 80s and 90s period. Mm. It, it definitely just shows his directing talents and how he has an ability to rule a troop of people, that he makes several talented artists collaborate under uh, a single guided vision that results in what is quite a unique film. And it feels like no one could have really made this film but Coppola. Uh, it's... 
it's a specific type of film and a view of America that even though it has traces in previous films and filmmaking, it's it's at the same time a very unique vision and a very unique like spectrum of uh, how he views the world. And it also shows Coppola's like stubbornness. I mean, this man has almost got insane and contemplated suicide and he's faced bankruptcy on numerous occasions, but he always bounces back and he always comes with intriguing features that are visually stunning to watch when he's making another attempt at filmmaking. But it's like this unfavoring determination to make whatever film he wants uh, in Rumblefish. And he has this like unique ability to do that. Yeah, it's funny that he thought this would be a huge hit and kind of speaks to the way that he can get lost in his own head. And I think that's to the best of his artistry. And, you know, he's later said that he's glad he took up the wine business because it's the only <laughs> thing he'd be, he could be business-like about. Um, <laughs> and I'm certainly glad because it's allowed him to make more weird, offbeat, unusual films. Mm. Uh, from what I understand, he uses that now as his financial, like, platform for a film, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, definitely the last three films. I know he recently struck a deal with Paramount and he's been working at least in some capacity on their lot, um, developing a film for them. So mm. I, I think the perhaps the uh, piggy bank has run out in that regard. Um, okay. But it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely reinvigorated him. And mm. so I'm happy for that. Do you, do you have um, the Master of Cinema disc? Oh, yeah. Um, we mentioned the commentary. One thing that I always love about Coppola's or films about by Coppola on Blu-ray and DVD is his, the commentaries. He's, he's such an eloquent speaker, and he he always manages to have this laid-back yet informative track. Yeah, his commentaries are. I mean, especially as far as directors' commentaries go, some of the best. Uh, hmm. And it's very interesting that he had this period where he wasn't making any movies. He was producing his daughters and his sons. And I think some, a couple others here and there. But for the most part, he just had this time at this exact moment when DVD kind of flourished. And so he had all this time to record these commentaries that I don't think we would necessarily would have gotten from him otherwise. And mm. so he's able to, I mean, especially now, so many commentaries are recorded while directors are still doing press for the film as they're <laughs> coming out in theaters. So there's so little distance on it and they're so flower and complimentary. But he's able to look back and uh, reflect on the things he might have done differently or the things that he's proud of. Uh, and so I think that helps in a lot of ways, but yeah, he's just, I mean, he's just a very generous guy with the way he talks about his, uh, own influences and impulses. And yeah, it, it I'm glad that DVD, kind of, it's a perfect moment for his career and for him to look back on the films. And it's very touching to hear him talk about, uh, his, uh, children having them on set and their involvement in the films. And especially listening actually to the Godfather part three, he just says he can't help but just admire Sofia Coppola, even though that's the element that everybody picks on. He's like, mm. you know, what can I do? She's my daughter. She's yeah. <laughs> 18 years old. She was absolutely gorgeous. And he just loves that he got to feature her. And so that kind of makes the film more touching as a result. And even here where that's the element he always latches onto, you know, you do kind of lose uh, the experience of having your kids be young once they grow older, but he was able to kind of keep them alive in that way. Hmm. I, I remember listening to the commentary track for the conversation. And at one time, at one point in the film, he talked about how directing a film, it's, it's the most excruciating experience you can have. And he, it's like everything about the process is something that he finds like difficult or 
it's it's he he always struggles with every single uh thing about the production but seeing the film finished and when it's all over and done with that's what makes it gratifying for him <laughs> and it it kind of speaks to his uh, like stubborn capabilities yeah i think on that commentary he talks about how all his great films were agony to make and how he, he <laughs> loved making the rainmaker but doesn't think much of it as a film um hmm. and i know that was the case with the conversation um, even though he talks about actually Rumblefish being, I think, a pretty pleasant experience, I'm sure hmm. by the time he got to Wrangley with the studio for release and stuff, I'm sure it stopped being that. Hmm. The release itself, the like, I, f- I find the, the picture quality is uh, excellent in the film. Oh, it's stunning. It's unbelievable. And I hope that, you know, Universal will take that master and do more with it than just license out to one distributor. You know, maybe Criterion can release it here, but hmm. it's definitely... It's one of those discs that I go to and recommending that people get a region-free player, at least here in the States. Mm. And just in terms of wrapping up the discussion of the film, this is a film that I showed to my friend that he usually doesn't watch any type of like art house cinema or something. But um, when you can sort of name drop Francis Ford Coppola, even though this is an entirely different film for what people usually connotate with Coppola, he even still... Uh, enjoyed it immensely and just a really personal film that I think many people can relate to even though it's in black and white and even though it might be kind of slow going I think it's pretty it's a pretty easy film to recommend not only for the visuals but for the story itself oh for sure I mean I think as long as somebody is open to the possibility of liking a movie like this which is in some ways unusual but like you said just with the emotional tenor of the movie is so immensely relatable. Um, the, I cannot help but recommend it to everybody. I get the chance to. Mm. What's next for you in terms of uh, film blogging and what's, uh, what's on your table now that we can look forward to? Oh, it, you put it right in saying it's on my table because I've got a <laughs> big stack of discs that I need to work through for criterion cast. I just got the re-release of the Lubitsch in Berlin set, which I've never checked out, even though Lubitsch is one of my, another one of my absolute favorite directors. So I'm very eager to check that out. Mm. Uh, I've got the Serpico disc. Um, let's see. I'm looking at my table right now. I've got uh, Epic of Everest from the BFI. Um, and then I the Criterion sale just happened. So for leisure, oh, I do yeah. have like <laughs> Fantastic Mr. Fox and Thief, which I've never seen. Um, so yeah, and then the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival is coming up uh, in about a month, actually. And that is something I look forward to every year. And we'll be covering that for Battleship Retention. Great. Um, so um, tell us where we can find you online. I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. That's R A I L of Tomorrow. That's also my website, which I update very infrequently at railoftomorrow.com and then more frequently at battleshippretension.com and criterioncast.com. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Um, it was a pleasure having you on, and I'm sure we can have you back on when Tom has uh, gotten his internet connection. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks again for the invite. I really enjoyed discussing one of, one of my favorite films. Great. Um, you can find us at moccast.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter at moc underscore cast. You can write us an email and tell us what you think of uh, Rumblefish at messofcinemacast at gmail.com. So um, until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>